Welcome to Konichi Value, Japan's bubble burst, the party that wasn't supposed to end. This is a detailed depiction of Japan's lost decade, which started in 1991 and ended in 2001. To get a full depth of the biggest economics collapse in history, I have relied on several sources. Mainly, I've taken the liberty to take excerpts, translate, and restructure. My favorite parts of Katsuhide Kagiyama's amazing book, Redoing Economic History. I've also added parts from the book Princess of the Yen by Richard Werner. Lastly, I've included multiple reputable sources, such as Deutsche Welle and Nikkei Asia. This is the most thorough project I have ever embarked on on this blog, and I'm happy that it is finally finished. So, without further ado, enjoy the story of Japan's lost decade, part one, 1991 till 1994, the party that wasn't supposed to end. Japan was on its way to surpass the United States as the world's largest economy, and the supply of infinite growth and prosperity seemed non stop. Then the party suddenly stopped. The common knowledge is that the Japanese economic bubble burst in 1991. This is true, as the decline in land prices began that year. In fact, already at the end of 1989, Japanese stock prices continued to fall at an alarming rate. The stock market bubble had burst, and everyone should have had a premonition. That Japan's future was in danger. However, it wasn't until the beginning of 1993 that most Japanese people realized that the economy was in deep trouble. Why this discrepancy? An important lesson for any future recession is that it is natural for there to be a gap between the decline in the economy and the realization of a recession. Just because real estate and stocks weren't doing well didn't mean that companies would instantly fail. Even if they couldn't borrow money from the big banks, they still managed to secure capital from investors and less risk averse banks. However, as the economic situation gradually became worse, profits declined and sources of money started to shrivel up. It just took a few years for them to catch up. To reality. The Japanese bubble burst through the eyes of Katsuhide Kagiyama. This part is a collection of translated excerpts from the book Redoing Economic History by Kagiyama. I was still a student in the early 90s and life was great. I went out drinking almost every day, wasting money on women, gambling, and putting anything I had left. Into all kinds of investments. Everything was going up, and it felt like every yen I spent was going to double next year. Our brains had been so thoroughly poisoned by the bubble of the past few years that we were all insanely optimistic. Most of us didn't even consider that the prosperity could ever come to an end. That's why neither I nor anyone around me could make normal risk judgments. 
I thought, if stock prices have fallen, why not recover it by purchasing land? This is the same thinking as a compulsive gambler. I lost that pachinko, so let's get it back with Mahjong. The difference was that a whole nation was thinking like this. This idea is depicted perfectly in Kaiji, a Japanese manga depicting the minds of obsessive gamblers, which the Netflix series Squid Games is based on. Getting a job went from a given to a luxury. Around 1993, we were keenly aware of the arrival of a full-scale recession due to the physical signs of bursting of all assets in the Japanese economy. That year was the year I graduated and started job hunting. Before graduating, I'd been complaining that I didn't want to be a company employee, but I knew it was time to grow up and pay tribute to society. I waited for the mountains of job postings to arrive like they have had every year before. But they didn't come. Did I miss something? Had I not been informed that personal departments around Japan have started new ways of recruiting? Although I felt a bit uneasy, I went to the nearest bookstore and bought a job information magazine. I sent my resume to three companies that I thought I would get an offer from within days. After a while, I received a reply from all three companies. When I saw the reply, I could not believe it. Although they had different expressions, they contained the same content. Due to various circumstances, we have decided not to hire new graduates this year. What did they mean? The bubble had already burst, and the newspapers and TV had been saying this for a long time. But this is the first time I felt it. This year, I failed to find a job and became a freelance lecturer at a cram school. I remember that it felt so humiliating. For my whole life, I've been taught that full-time corporate employment was the only form of respectable occupation and that anything less was only for good-for-nothing deadbeats. At the same time, the world around me began to flood with news about corporate bankruptcies, arrests of bankers, and scandals at securities companies. Perhaps even more humiliating for me was that there was an unprecedented rice shortage that year, and most Japanese people were forced to eat Thai rice, even though it was considered vastly inferior to Japanese rice. What a humbling year it was. End of excerpt. The Japanese government steps in. Shortly after the burst of the bubble, the Japanese government announced that they will implement emergency economic measures. They offered the most orthodox physical policy possible, issuing new government bonds and using them as financial resources to reduce income taxes and carry out public work projects. If this was a normal recession, this policy would have gradually recovered the economy. However, this was no ordinary recession. This was the biggest bubble in history that had just collapsed. 
What needed to be done was not only to create demand through stimulus, but to clean up Japan's financial sector, which was the root cause of the bubble. Even though the government was able to spur people's consumption to some extent by scattering money, as the banks and securities companies were not functioning properly, the flow of money just reformed into new bubbles. After some time of ever-increasing government stimulus, nothing had really changed. All that was left for the people was a recession with no end in sight and a huge financial deficit due to the issuance of deficit-covering government bonds. Japanese banks had billions in collateral. Why was it not collected? One of many factors that greatly delayed the post-bubble economic recovery was the amount of non-performing loans Japanese banks held. Non-performing loans are loans that have become uncollectible. In other words, the lender is insolvent and usually in the stage of legal bankruptcy liquidation, aka a bankrupt borrower. What was so weird in this situation was that no asset of the lender were retrievable. After all, banks take collateral when lending money. In most cases, a business loan is structured something like this. We will lend you 50 million yen, but in return, we will take your factory as collateral. When you go bankrupt or die, we will own the factory and not lose money. However, at the time of the bubble, excessive lending was rampant in Japanese banks. In anticipation of a future rise in land prices, most banks started lending more money than their borrowers' current collateral value, and brokers would work together with bankers to write fake requests for approval. So, when the bubble burst and banks came to collect, all that was left of the insolvent companies were the junk real estate with a much lower value than the money they lent. Moreover, now that the bubble had burst, the value of the real estate was dropping even further. However, banks turned a blind eye to this problem, even after the burst of the bubble, and kept the loans at their inflated value on their balance sheets. This is because many of the bankers held these nasty loans personally. In some banks, practically all employees held these nasty loans from the bubble period. So, if the bad loans were acknowledged, not only would the bank implode, but all its employees would also go bankrupt. However, as the bursting of the bubble became bigger, the true state of the banks was revealed and the bad loans increased at an alarming rate. In other words, Japanese banks only had massive collateral on paper. In reality, it was only junk. As a result, banks were forced to write off bad loans and suffer huge losses. This led to a vicious cycles where the bank's capital base was eroded and they were unable to lend, leading to a further decline in the Japanese economy. Part 2 1995 to 1997 Everything gets even worse. 
the government started bailing out banks with tax money. In 1995, Yusen, a collection of Japan's largest financial institutions specializing in residential mortgages, went bankrupt. With backing from the Trusted Agricultural Cooperatives, or JA as they're known in Japan, Yusen was believed to have no financial problems until the bubble collapsed. Surprisingly, the government decided to inject 685 billion yen of public tax funds into the already bankrupt Yusen. This caused a severe backlash from the public. Yusen's bailout was incredibly suspicious. The first reason the bailout was so suspicious was Yusen's government connection. Six of the eight presidents in Yusen were former bureaucrats of the Ministry of Finance. Then there were the unnatural regulations. The Minister of Finance was legally obliged to publicly report the total volume of real estate loans. However, they created a disclosure exceptions for loans to residential housing and agricultural cooperative financial institutions, the main holdings of USEN. Furthermore, the Minister of Finance and the Ministry of Agriculture, Forestry and Fishery, or MAF as they're also called, had secretly exchanged a memorandum of understanding to bail out JA in the event of a bankruptcy in exchange for investing in USEN. This information was made public in the 1996 USEN diet. In other words, Yusen was completely controlled by the bureaucrats at the Ministry of Finance to promote their interests. On top of that, its assets were connected to MAF, JA, and the Liberal Democratic Party, LDP, the ruling party in Japanese government for almost the entirety of Japan's post-war history. Hence, Despite the extreme backlash from the public to bail out Yusen with tax money, it was in the government's absolute best interest to do so. And just like that, the horrific practice of bailing out financial institutions with public funds was established in Japanese government. The Kobe earthquake and the start of the yen appreciation. On January 17, 1995, Japan was hit by the Great Hanshin Awaji Earthquake, or the Kobe Earthquake. It lasted for over 20 seconds and was among the strongest, deadliest and costliest to ever strike Japan. It measured 7 on the GMA seismic intensity scale and killed 6,434 people. Japanese insurance companies started to frantically sell all their foreign currency assets to buy yen in preparation for paying the insurance claims 
that were flooding their offices after the earthquake. To make matters worse, domestic consumption for foreign goods and services was at an all-time low while Japanese goods were still demanded abroad. This caused an increase in demand for the yen among foreigners, since the yen is needed to buy Japanese goods. Multiple other factors exacerbated the appreciations. Measures taken by the United States to reduce the trade deficit with Japan, the devaluation of the yuan as a preferential treatment for China, the evacuation of foreign money to the yen stemming from the Mexican currency crisis, and, in general, speculative purchases of the yen to benefit from the appreciation, created the perfect storm for the currency. The appreciation progressed at a rapid pace. In 1990, the yen began to appreciate to around 150 yen to the dollar. But by early 1995, it was 100 yen to the dollar, and then 90 yen, and then 80 yen. On April 19, 1995, the exchange rate finally hit its all-time high of 79 yen to the US dollar. The Bank of Japan, BOJ, steps in. Japan was already in a state of economic despair. Many started to see the writing on the wall. If the yen continues to appreciate, Japanese exports would no longer be profitable and further bankruptcies would ensue. To combat the appreciation, the Bank of Japan, or BOJ, lowered its official interest rate to 0.5%. With the BOJ lowering its official interest rate to 0.5%, Japan had the lowest interest rate in history. This low rate is significant when considering that one of the main triggers for the Japanese financial bubble was that the BOJ lowered its interest rate to 2.5% in 1986. When that rate was announced, Japanese banks increased their borrowing and lending at an insane pace, claiming that it was too cheap to ignore. Now, if the post-bubble rate was only one-fifth of that, doesn't that mean a much larger bubble could form? Not at all. With the scars still not healed from the bursting of the bubble, Japanese banks frantically turned away incoming customers. Out of ever increasing fear, banks refused to lend money to their customers, as they saw them as potential sources of bad debt. Banks started seeing all incoming customers as nothing more than bad debt risk, and their main goal became to prevent any further risk, even at the cost of zero growth. Instead, they sentenced small and medium-sized enterprises to death by taking away their working capital on the grounds that they had broken collateral. The phrase, banks lend umbrellas when it's sunny and take them when it rains, was often used to explain how the Japanese banks were acting at the time. Part 3 1997 to 1999 Reality catches up to the Japanese government. The fiscal law that destroyed Japan's recovery. In 1997, despite the ongoing recession, 
the Japanese government implemented a retroactive policy called the Fiscal Structure Reform Law. It was simply put, a law that said, we know we are in a recession, but we are still going to take more money from you. The government had implemented several emergency economic measures to deal with the post-bubble recession. But when they proved ineffective and only increased the amount of debt, they panicked. Therefore, the ruling cabinet at the time, the Hashimoto cabinet, tried to restore the soundness of the fiscal structure, even though it would impose a burden to the public. The consumption tax was raised from 3% to 5%, and medical expenses were increased. And all special income tax cuts were cancelled. That year, the budget deficit still increased by a trillion yen. At the end of 1997, the economic situation was already very fragile. But to make matters worse, the Asian currency crisis occurred. As a result, loans all over Asia became non-performing loans. The Japanese economy went into an even deeper recession and the public discontent led to the defeat of the Hashimoto cabinet in the 1998 House of Councils election. Bad Japanese banks finally collapsed and pessimism became the norm. In 1997-98, to major financial institutions went bankrupt in a chain reaction. In November 1997, Hokkaido's largest bank, Hokkaido Takushoku Bank, or Takugin for short, went bankrupt. In comparison to the start of the bursting of the bubble, this news did not shock the Japanese public. They had already been rehabilitated to expect the worst and pessimism had become the standard outlook. Just one week after Takagin's bankruptcy, Yamaichi Securities, a massive securities trading firm, voluntarily closed down. Yamaichi was one of the four main securities companies in Japan, along with Nomura, Daiwa and Nikko. The LTCB collapse exposed the corruption of the Japanese government. In 1998, the Long-Term Credit Bank of Japan, or LTCB for short, went bankrupt. It was established in 1952 and was the biggest long-term credit bank in Japan. In fact, in 1990, it was the ninth largest bank in the world. The main purpose of the bank was to support capital investment funds for post-war reconstruction efforts. However, LTCB struggled during the bubble period as the numbers of customers decreased. Therefore, LTCB, like other banks, decided to invest in more bubble-like directions, i.e. land and stocks, instead of industrial finance to secure customers. As a result, LTCB had loaned to insolvent customers and leasing companies and subsequently went bankrupt after the bubble burst. However, LTCB's bankruptcy was different. Even though the company was already bankrupt, it did not collapse. It was if someone was keeping it alive on life support like a zombie. 
who was keeping LTCB alive. LTCB was a bank created by Hayato Ikeda, former Prime Minister of Japan, and had very deep connections with LDP's Kokenkai, or Conservative Faction. Or rather, it acted like Kokenkai's wallets. Since LTCB mainly focused on industrial finance, it was the prime lender to general contractors, and since the general contractors are the LDP's source of vitality, or voting and donations, the failure of LTCB would be bad for the LDP. In other words, the LDP desperately wanted to protect LTCB. Its bankruptcy would also be bad for the LDP because it played a role in policy-based finance by lending to the Japanese Oil Corporation and Tokyo Electric Power Company, or TEPCO. In the end, the prime minister at the time of LTCB's bankruptcy, Keizo Obuchi, was personally engaged in searching for potential buyers for the bank, but was not successful. As a last-ditch effort, Kichi Miyazawa, chairman of the Financial Reconstruction Commission, adopted a policy of firmly protecting LTCB until a receiver was found. During its reconstruction, many people were arrested for fraudulent accounting and fraud, but they were all acquitted by the Supreme Court. In addition, two long-term bank executives who were involved in the cover-up committed suicide. Part 4. The End of the Lost Decade After more than 10 years and the collapse of many of Japan's most rotten institutions, the country's economy finally returned to a pattern of moderate but steady expansion. After a series of cabinet reshufflings and many corruption cases coming to light, some structural reforms were finally being implemented, such as deregulations and a liberalization of the Japanese economy, which have helped improve the efficiency and competitiveness in the country. A perhaps more crucial factor to Japan's recovery was actually the recovery of other major economies, such as the United States and China, which has helped improve global economic conditions and boost demand for Japanese exports. However, Japan never truly recovered from the lost decade, as new and more systematic issues arose. One of the biggest threats to Japan's economic recovery is its declining population an aging society, which is already leading to a shortage of labor and a reduction in domestic demand. In addition, Japanese institutions never really recovered from their pessimistic and hawkish view of the economy. Japanese banks are still reluctant to borrow to anything but large enterprises, and Japanese companies have become hostile to implementing new reforms and new technologies. Presently, Japan is the least productive country in the G7. Furthermore, despite the implementation of structural reform and expansionary monetary and fiscal policies, there are still many questions 
about the underlying health of Japan's economy and its ability to sustain long-term growth. While the end of the last decade may bring some relief, it is clear that Japan still has a long road ahead to ensure a bright and prosperous future. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Victor Adossi, for the idea. And thank you all for giving me the time and courage to finally finish this podcast. Yours sincerely, Ray Saito. <laughs>